Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Josh. Thank you for tuning in. I am so glad to share the next few minutes with you today. I'm all about you thriving in life and growing in your relationship with Jesus. At Valley View Friends Church, we like to say that we are learning how to live as God's people, and we do this by reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. Well, today's message is on living for the Lord, and our text is found in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. And it's in the midst of this text about conflict, about division in the church, that we hear about what it is to live for the Lord. But let's start first with a story. As was the normal routine on Sunday morning, a wife got ready for church. She got up, she had breakfast, she showered, got dressed, put on makeup, and was ready to go. It was just as she was ready to leave that she noticed her husband was still in his robe and pajamas. She asked him, well, what's going on? I'm not going to church, he responded. What do you mean you're not going to church? Give me one good reason why you're not going to church. And the husband responded, I'll give you three good reasons why I'm not going to church. Reason number one, that church just feels cold and unfriendly. Reason number two, no one there likes me. And reason number three, I just don't like it there. Is that good enough? He concluded quite proudly. Well, what if I give you three reasons why you should go to church? The wife answered. Reason number one, the church is actually quite warm and very friendly. Reason number two, there are definitely people there who like you. And reason number three, you're the pastor, sweetheart, so you better get dressed and go to church. Oh my goodness, yep. That does happen to pastors, and it happens to all of us, whether it's in our own workplaces or with friends or even in our own families. We can feel unwelcome. And yes, unfortunately, sometimes you and I can feel unwelcome in the church. The church, the gathering of Christians, should be a place of welcome, of encouragement, and of spiritual growth. In our text today, Paul is addressing areas of disagreement between the Christians who were in Rome. These problems were quite common that they were wrestling with, and Paul didn't want their disagreement to cause a break in unity or in their practice of holiness, or certainly not to damage the mission of the church to share the gospel. So the big idea for you today is this. The church, Christ's church, is called to unity, to holiness, and to the mission of the gospel. And you can only fulfill this calling when you do everything for the Lord. Living for the Lord will always change you and your community for the better. So let's go ahead and read the text in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. It begins like this. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand." One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains 
does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we all will stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. First, I need you to see that Paul is addressing disagreement over non-essential issues in the church. He's not talking about issues of uh, doctrine and theology, of issues about sin and morality. But it is amazing how small things, small issues, can become everything. I also want to point out that Paul does not dismiss these disputable issues as unimportant either. Disagreement needs to be taken very seriously, and all sides should be heard. The picture we get from Romans 14 is of two groups, weaker and stronger Christians. I understand that weaker and stronger, those words imply quite a lot about which side is in the right and which side's in the wrong. But if you read the text very carefully, Paul doesn't truly take a side. He doesn't tell one side just to grow up and the other side that they're really right. In the end, he says, be gracious as everyone will stand before God at the judgment seat and everyone will need his grace. So who are these weak and strong Christians? Well, most likely, because we don't know for sure, but most likely this is about conflict between Jewish converts to Christianity and Gentile converts to Christianity. Often when uh, the Jewish people would convert over to the Christian faith, they would want to keep following uh, regulations and practices that they have observed their whole lives. They would want to follow Jewish dietary regulations. They wanted to observe Jewish holy days, festivals, in addition to the Sabbath. Often Gentile converts who had no background with such traditions didn't want to partake and saw these as an unnecessary practice and very restrictive. And Gentiles often rejoiced in being freed of regulations and rituals as their pagan faith tied them to an endless uh, an endless treadmill of meaningless sacrifices to false gods. Now they knew the real God, and they knew that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. And they didn't want to take on new practices that became a substitute for the old ways. Ultimately, though, there was a difference of opinion. And that difference of opinion was leading to a breakdown of unity. And opinion became the measure of of holiness. And this jeopardized the ministry of the church. So I want to talk about those three things real quickly. Unity and holiness and, and mission. Unity is essential. John Donne writes these words, No man is an island entirely of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent. And the Christian should never forget that they are a part of the body of Christ. None of us stands by ourselves. 
Now in Rome, the believers were divided. And we see this in verse 1 when Paul warns against quarreling. And we see it in verse 10 when Paul warns against treating fellow Christians with contempt. They're on the verge of dividing over this. Contempt is a very strong word, and it should get our attention. Contempt means feeling that someone or something is beneath consideration, that they're just worthless. And when a person feels completely right about something, it's easy to discount those who don't agree. That's a human habit. And contempt runs rampant in our culture today. Disagreement over an issue has become permission for contempt. And when you practice contempt, it can also feel pretty righteous. Like, oh, I'm I'm in the right and they're in the wrong. And that sort of righteousness is very addictive. John Stott writes these words, Be careful what you make a test for orthodoxy or a condition for fellowship. Nor must we marginalize fundamental theological or moral questions as if they are only cultural or of of no great importance. So we've got to be careful on both sides. Don't make tests that God didn't put there, and don't trivialize things that do matter. But we need unity. And unity does not mean that there'll never be differences of opinion, but the church should shine brightly in our disagreements. We should be made stronger in our disagreements. We should be encouraged through disagreement, not disheartened. The devil loves to see a congregation divided. And he will do everything possible to deepen a crack into a rift. Don't let him. And our culture is another enemy to Christian unity. In our world, following your truth is a phrase that is just highly valued. And customer satisfaction as king is another phrase we live by. And we would do well to not heed those words, but to heed the words of Romans 14. And do what we can to come together, despite differences of opinion. That's what Paul is asking of the Roman church. And that's what we're asked to do. When it comes to unity, Augustine of Hippo says this, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. I like that. In all things, charity. Because graciousness is a key to unity. Well, let's talk about holiness for a moment here. Holiness is required of the church, of the Christian Um, The disputable matters of Romans 14, uh, what to eat, what not to eat, which days are holy and which days are not, what they had become about was really a fight about who is truly living for God and who isn't. Those that felt they were observing Jewish regulations for food and holy days felt like they were honoring God. And those that felt freedom to eat all foods and observe different holy days, they too felt like they were honoring God. And they wanted... Both, side, both sides to come to the other and do it their way, because they felt right. But Paul does not say that food and holy days are unimportant. He says they are important. He's just saying that fighting over them is getting in the way of more important tasks. And the rules they were following were starting to replace holiness. And that's a problem. Because holiness is commanded by God. It's there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Holy living does not make us better. 
I need you to hear that very clearly because that's often when we get into disagreement, when we think that holiness makes us better and then we see someone not doing that holy thing. So we go, oh, we need to help them become better. And then we get into a fight. Holiness does not make us better. And holy living does not make us better than others. Holy living is an act of obedience to God. The only one who can be righteousness for us, who can be make us better, is Jesus. Okay? So holy living doesn't make us better. It just makes us obedient. And holy living is an act of gratitude to God. So be careful. You can let those disputable matters take the place of obedience to God. And the third area is witness, mission. Our witness matters. And I would remind you of the Great Commission, the mission that Jesus gave the church, which is in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know, at Valley View, and I mentioned it already in the podcast, but at Valley View, we try to sum up that great commission with the words, reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. Because a Christian is to expand God's kingdom by sharing the good news of Jesus with those who don't know him yet. And we also are to disciple, to help others mature as we mature ourselves in Christ. That's one of the primary tasks of the church. And Paul does not want disputes in Rome to hinder its mission, its witness. And we see it today. When church conflicts make the news, our witness is made all the more difficult. A bad news story about a church makes sharing the gospel a real challenge sometimes. And for the Roman church, if they messed up, the whole empire would hear. They need to be getting things right. So what are we to do? How are we to address non-essential issues so that they're treated with the importance they deserve, but without letting them become king? Well, Paul offers two answers. The first one is to be the stronger brother. A lot of ink has been spent as pastors and scholars have tried to discern who exactly were these weak believers that Paul writes about and who are these strong believers that Paul writes about in Rome. No one really knows precisely who they were and what made them weak. Jewish converts got a lot right when it came to following Jesus. They got a lot wrong, too. And Gentile converts got a lot right when it came to following Jesus, and they got a lot of things wrong as well. And that is still true of Christians today. We get things right, and we get things wrong about following Jesus. So, how do you know? Am I the weaker brother? How do you know if you're the stronger brother? Often we associate weaker with terms like immature and sinful and troublemaking. And likewise, we associate stronger with maturity and righteousness and spiritual health. And that's not incorrect to make those assumptions, but there's something else going on here in the passage. The truth is, is at any given moment, we can become a weaker believer. 
We can be the one struggling, and we can become the one who is standing in judgment over another. Because we all have something in our lives that needs to be worked on by the Holy Spirit. However, Romans 14 puts before the Christian a choice. Choose to be the stronger brother. Resolve that in all ways you will serve others in the body of Christ. Resolve to be a believer full of grace and acceptance. Resolve that it is only by the grace that Jesus has given you and forgiveness that he's given you and freedom that he's given you that you are called righteous and so that you need to be gracious to others. Choose to be the stronger brother. It's a choice you make. It's a choice to take on graciousness. The second clue that Paul gives us on how to deal with being weaker, stronger, and living well for the Lord is this, that phrase that is all through our text today. I hope you heard me emphasizing it as we read. It's simply the phrase, live for the Lord. You find it especially in verse 8. It's the key to the health of each Christian and to the church. And and that verse 8 is also the key for navigating issues that are are non-essential and discerning if we're approaching essentials rightly. It's to live for the Lord. And in all things we live for the Lord. We live for the Lord. We die for the Lord. But how do you live for the Lord in all things? Because when we live for Him, we're making Him priority, right? And when we live for Him, we've got to say no to ourselves and our own desires. So, how do we live for the Lord? We make of the utmost priority several things. And a couple I would highlight is this. If you're going to live for the Lord, you're going to make priority Christ's will. I often pray. When I pray, I and I'm trying to figure out where to go next in my life and in leadership as a pastor and what to do for our church, my prayer is, is that I don't want to accomplish what seems right to my eyes, but instead, I want to be about the will of God. So, I'll, I'll say, Lord, I don't want to do, just do what seems right to me, but Lord, I want to do what is in your will. It's an, a posture of my heart, an attitude of my mind. If you're going to live for Christ, you're going to have to put Christ's will first. And that means checking your own will at the door. And that's going to be something you're going to work on continually. The second thing is that you're going to make a priority of Christ's glory. Your actions should always be about honoring Jesus. I mean, honoring Jesus really needs to become the priority, giving Him glory, because most often our culture says, honor yourself, please yourself, do what you want. But instead, we are called to give Christ glory. And if that's our standard, that'll take a lot of the guesswork out of whether something is sinful or not. It's often more telling if someone you or something you want to do, if it honors you or if it pleases you, especially if that's in place of honoring Christ. A third area, a third priority is simply Christ's lordship. We don't use the word king in our culture very often, but our culture is full of kings and queens. The individual is royalty. Being true to yourself is a very high value in our culture today. But it is better to be true to Jesus. Will you let him be king in every part of your life? To say that there's something he doesn't care about is to say that really I get to be in charge of that instead. And that's not what Jesus wants. He is to be king of everything. 
The fourth final area is to make a priority of Christ's people. This comes back to being the stronger brother. Always seek the best for others, especially for other Christians. Seek to be gracious to them, to encourage them, to show gratitude to them. Philippians 2.3 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Living for the Lord is not only about addressing division, although I know that's the context of Romans 14, but living for the Lord is about facing all the challenges of life and living the best way possible and living the best way possible for God. And I want to bring our time to a close by sharing a little bit about of the story of the missionary and Olympian Eric Liddell. In particular, I want to highlight two pivotal decisions he made when it came to living for the Lord. And I want you to think of it in this way. Both were very hard decisions, but the first one was a difficult decision. But in making that decision and in continually making that decision, when it came to the second one, which was a much harder decision, he was able to truly make that difficult decision and and live for the kingdom in a way that most of us would be uncertain of how we would do. Many know the first decision. Eric Liddell made a decision early in his life to live for the Lord that was marked as, this decision was very countercultural, because Eric wanted to honor God through observing the Sabbath no matter what. He was a runner, and he was a very good runner. However, he refused to run races on the Sabbath. And this became news for the whole world to hear when he refused to run his main event, the 100-meter dash, in 1924 at the Olympics. He wanted to run the race, but the preliminary heats for the race were on a Sunday. He wouldn't do that. So instead, Liddell retrained on short notice for the 400-meter, which was scheduled only for weekdays. He ended up winning the gold medal for that event, and he held the record for the 100-meter dash that he set before the Olympics for the next 23 years. So he was good at the 100-meter. It made all the sense in the world for him to run it to get another medal, but he wouldn't do it. He was living for the Lord in a very countercultural way. That first decision was very countercultural. He represented Christ to the utmost in the world of sports. But Liddell was more than just a Christian athlete. He and his family served as missionaries to China. They entered the field in 1925, just one year after the Olympics. Could have run more, run more races, got more awards, but that was not his calling. And it was while on the missionary field that Eric Liddell had to make another difficult decision, this time a little bit less countercultural and even more for the glory of the kingdom of God. Years later, 1942, Japanese power had grown fiercely in Asia and parts of China, and Great Britain called home its citizens. They could no longer guarantee safety. Danger was imminent. Liddell sent his wife and his children to Canada. Eric stayed in China, offering relief for exhausted missionaries at a rural mission station. Conflict between China and Japan erupted, and it led to a capture of many people living in China. Uh, But Liddell was one of those among many others in the area, and they were taken to an internment camp. Liddell became a unifying force in that internment camp. 
people were in shock that they had been captured, and so they were had instantly become adversaries to each other, even as prisoners, missionaries and unbelievers, those who were poor, those who were wealthy. There was suffering, scarcity, and there was fear. And Liddell was able to become a person everyone in the camp trusted and respected. It was also in that camp that Liddell would die. February 21st, 1945. Just five months before liberation. It was reported that the entire camp, especially its youth, was stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. According to a fellow missionary, Liddell's last words were, It's complete surrender, in reference to how he had given his life to God. And that is a portrait of living for the Lord. It is for God's glory. It shines the power of his kingdom, and it bids a wonderful welcome to those who are without Jesus. Resolve today in all you do to live for the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be a people who in everything live for the Lord. Show us where we favor our own preferences and our passions over your will. Show us to whom we need to be gracious. Lord, help us to live in a unity, a holiness, and a fervency of mission that our lives and our conduct would be a welcome to all to receive Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.